Welcome to Talks at GS, where leading thinkers share insights and ideas shaping the world. This session of Talks at GS was recorded before a live audience. Welcome to Talks at GS. My name is Michael Pease. I co-head the firm's Office of Government Affairs, and I'm really excited to have Senator Doug Jones of Alabama with us, who won his current seat in 2017 in a special election, a historic defeat of Roy Moore as the first Democratic senator in Alabama in almost 25 years. Senator Jones previously spent time as both a private practicing lawyer and the U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of Alabama, where he famously prosecuted two members of the KKK for their roles in the 16th Street Baptist bombing and is the basis of his new book, Bending Towards Justice, the Birmingham church bombing that changed the course of civil rights. So Senator, it's a thrill to have you here. Thank and you. Thank you for all the work you are doing now and what you've done in the past, particularly as it relates um, to civil rights and moving that you know, forward. So you grew up in Fairfield, mostly white neighborhood in the outskirts of Birmingham. Mm -hmm. And you were nine years old, I think, right. is that right? When the, when the bombing occurred. Uh, and you, in some ways, enjoyed the privilege of being a, a young white child in, in Alabama. In while, a segregated world, for in sure. In a segregated world that was shattered in that time by a horrific bombing. Right. Um, so just, if you could, set, set the stage a little bit about how you grew up in the tale of two cities that, you know, that was the segregated South in Alabama. Well, well that, that's a good description, a, a tale of two cities, and it was a tale of two cities within a city because you had, a, you had the, the white suburbs and you, you had the black neighborhoods, and uh, it was a segregated world in a, war, in a, in a time when there, was, there were you know, three television stations. Uh, we listened to AM radio and not FM radio. And so the news was filtered to some extent. And uh, it was a very protected world. We did not, there was not a, a lot of mingling among races. And my, my parents, we just lived in our world and we went to school and we went to church. And what was going on in Birmingham was a world away. So the bombings occur and sort of shatter that community. They galvanize the civil rights movement and, all, and put in very human terms the cost of institutionalized and active racism that was happening in Alabama. In 1968, um, uh, J. Edgar Hoover shut down yes. those investigations. And that's sort of the predicate for, for, for what happens afterwards. Why? Why did he shut them down? Yeah. Well, because, in, un, unfortunately, and folks don't really realize this, but you know, in, in most state courts, there was no statute of limitations for a murder. You can, you can prosecute at any time, which is what we did in ours. But in federal court in those days, even a civil rights crime was a five-year statute of limitations. So after 1968, the feds had virtually no jurisdiction. And Hoover shut that case down. Now, he didn't talk to the prosecutors, which he should have done prior to, to, to closing the file, but the statute was running, and he shut it down without bringing those cases, knowing that one of these days, somehow, some way, I think it could change. Now, Hoover has taken a lot of criticism over the years, rightly so, on a lot of things that, that we now know that J. Edgar Hoover did. He was no friend of the civil rights movement. And for many years, it was thought that Hoover didn't 
really investigate the church bombing case because there were no prosecutions. The fact is he did. Um, the, the boots on the ground in, at the FBI was extraordinary, but just like so many homicide cases around the country, you can't always prove them. So the case was closed in 1968. And he did that, by the way. He was no friend of the civil rights movement. But we had the records to show that he kept talking about that the reputation of the Bureau was at stake. And if J. Edward Hoover was anything, he wanted to protect his reputation and the reputation of the Bureau. So he got closed in 68 and didn't get another look for a couple more years until Alabama uh, elected a young attorney general named Bill Baxley, uh, who was in law school at the time and vowed to really do something. And he opened it up from a state perspective. So he opens it up from a state perspective. You're going to law school and sort mm -hmm. of you're presumably following this case. And he ends up getting a conviction of one of the suspects. Yeah. And for my own, for everybody's knowledge, was it always known that there were three suspects oh. in this case? I mean, were the, were the bombers always identified or did the second two that you ultimately prosecuted become known later? No, they were generally identified fairly early, especially Chambliss. Uh, and Blanton. Chambliss was who Bill, Bill prosecuted in 1977. He was the ringleader of a group of Klansmen. They used to meet, you know, back in those days in Alabama and different places, there were a lot of claverns. That's the chapters, what they called them, claverns of the Klan. And they met, there were different chapters everywhere. The Eastview 13 clavern was one of the more violent groups. They met at the Fraternal Order of Police Lodge in the city of Birmingham. True story. But there was a group that would meet separately because they didn't think the Klan was doing enough. And those were the Cahaba River Bridge Boys. They would literally meet underneath a bridge like a bunch of trolls who, you know, uh, to, to plot their schemes. And, and we had a lot of evidence about that. But early on from the records that we saw, there was clearly Chambliss, Blanton, and to a lesser extent, Cherry, and a fellow named Cash, who died before I became U.S. attorneys, were always thought to be the main four people who had done this. Early on, they thought that. There was a lot of informant information at the time that could have never been used in a trial. They, didn't, they refused to testify, but we had a lot of information that we were on the right track. So how do you think about it? You become, you know, you become U.S. attorney. You're coming in when the case has been reopened after the Chambliss right. conviction. So just as a matter of um, a process, how do you think about taking a case that's that old, right, emblematic of an entire era, right. that much of a hot potato, people probably, and you talk about this in the book, want to move on. How do you think about saying, okay, now I, I, I'm going to take the, the ringleader has been prosecuted, there's been a conviction, I'm going to let another number of years go by. How do you think about a conviction or a case that old, memories fading, and successfully doing it to, because you're going to achieve two ends, not just individual justice, right. but for a whole era that needs to come to an end in Alabama. Yeah, it, it, was, a, it, was, a, it was a process that we, we really did instinctively. I mean, we knew that we needed to do it. One, because there was the, the, the thought that, that it didn't get investigated properly by Hoover. And I wanted to make sure as a U.S. attorney that if I had to de decline that case and close it, that I could look people in the eye and say we did everything that we could to try to get the evidence here. That's number one. But no, let me stop you. If they were doing the Chambliss case, 
1977, I think, right? Was it 1977? The state. The state. Not the feds. Why didn't, why weren't the other two suspects brought into that case with the ringleader? What was oh, okay. the... Here, look, I mean, it, it, Bill Baxley was elected to attorney general when he was 28 years old. Everybody knew he would be the first New South governor Alabama had. He did this case in 1977, and he gets defeated for governor in 1978. Um, it was not a politically popular thing to do for a state attorney general or a state official in those days. And so it stayed on the shelf for another 24 years before the United States Attorney's Office, before I got there, started looking in again with the FBI. So it was, it was the U.S. Attorney and the Department of Justice that picked it up 24 years later. If it had been left to the state, it probably would not have been done, even though what happened in the mid-90s really started opening people's mind because in 1994-95, you saw the conviction of Byron Day LeBeckwith for the murder of Medgar Evers. That case had been tried twice in Mississippi in the 1960s, both resulting from with hung juries. Got a conviction uh, of that case and people started looking at, at these old cases again. Then there was a conviction of Sam Bowers for the murder of Vernon Damer in Mississippi. Bowers was the head of the Klan. And so now all of a sudden investigators and prosecutors throughout the South started looking at these cases with a different eye that you can go back, that you can go back and re-examine these cases, look at it, maybe get new evidence, maybe piece together old evidence. But the fact is you've got a whole different jury, jury pool and a jury pool that is not coming in with the same baggage, the prejudicial, racial prejudicial baggage that they would have brought in in the 60s and maybe even in the 70s, although Bill was able to break that with the evidence with Chambers. And I guess this is the argument that you would agree, this is the importance of the federal government and the fact that the Justice Department could come in and do things that state, it's the state prosecutors couldn't do beyond the political um, exigencies of the time, but actually being able to come in and do something as only the feds can do. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you got to remember that the jurisdiction of the feds is much broader. So we could go to Texas to interview Cherry. We could we could issue subpoenas from all over the to all over the country to bring them into Birmingham. The state has limited resources as well as jurisdiction to try to deal with that. Even though there was no statute of limitation, being able to reach as broad as we did. Uh, in the Cherry and Blanton case was, a, was amazing. And we had a lot of help with the media and things like that, that people came forward with us that just saw things on the media. It's really a remarkable way that things just fell into place for us. Um, just to end on the trial part, if you had to think about it and summarize, you know, you basically brought up a cold case. What was the most compelling narrative that you think that you put forward in that trial that brought about the conviction? What is it that you think seized on it? You know, memories faded, I'm sure. The defense attacked a whole number lines of questioning that you, or lines of attack that you put forward. But what do you think in the end brought the case to its successful conclusion? It was, a, it was two things. We, you gotta remember, we ended up with two trials. We indicted these guys at the same time, and we, try, we were gonna combine them for one trial. But uh, on the eve of the trial, Cherry uh, had a, an expert that say he was suffering from dementia and couldn't assist with his own defense. So we separated those cases. Um, so we had two separate trials, and they were very different trials. The Blanton case, we had older evidence where the theme consistently through that was that 1963 was a year in which um, we called it the year of the child because a couple of things happened. Number one, you had the fire hoses and the dogs, 
in the, in, the, in the spring of 1963, which was the Children's Crusade. It was the kids who went to the streets of Birmingham that got hit with fire hoses and the dogs. And so in the 16th Street Baptist Church was the mass meeting place where those kids jumped off. And so when they settled that, they resolved that, the Klan was seeing their segregated way of life sliding away. And the, now, as much as Martin Luther King or Robert, Ralph Abernathy or Fred Shuttlesworth were symbols of the movement, that church and the children of Birmingham were the symbols of the movement. And when that happened, you put a target on them. So that was one theme that we had. School integration was another th uh, theme. In August of 1963, the federal courts ordered Birmingham schools to be desegregated for the first time. And Birmingham was a cauldron. Uh, that, there was so much violence that occurred after school desegregation. And that was really what prompted this. And so this September 15th, when this bomb occurred, that church and the children were coming together again for a youth worship service. Children had just integrated schools in Birmingham. And so those themes, I think, helped carry us. In the Blanton case, we had old witness. We had an informant uh, that made tape recordings named Mitchell Burns. He was an old Klansman, uh, an old Marine. We used about 26 excerpts, but we also found an undercover tape, one of J. Edgar Hoover's famous bugs that he'd put in the Blanton household in which there was a tape recording of Blanton telling his then wife, his girlfriend at the time of the bombing, and his alibi witness that the weekend of the bombing, he was with a group that was planning the bomb, making the bomb. Three times, three times he acknowledged, in, in, essentially in a confession. Cherry case was a lot different. Cherry ran his mouth, and every time he opened his mouth, he would not tell the truth. He was inconsistent. I was asked all the time, how do you know Cherry was lying about this? I said, well, he, he, was, he was opening his mouth. He was moving his lips. So he had to be lying. He was just, it was that kind of guy. Can I, let, me, let me, the obvious question, one, one follow-up on that. How does the tape where the guy admits that he's, um, you know, building the bomb three times, how does that just get lost and found again? That's a really good question, and I can't answer how it got lost. All I know is this. Well, how did it get found? That the FBI never thought that they would be able to get that tape into evidence. It yeah, was, I was going to ask you how do you it get was, evidence. It was made in a different, under a different theory um, that was evidence. Uh, it was gathering for intelligence purposes and not for use at a trial. But the, without giving a full two-hour CLE conference on this, um, the law changed, and we were able to show that it was in good faith made when it was done. Um, at the, we, we got it into evidence. It was upheld under a theory that it might could have been introduced because there was no trespass. This was before the wiretap law that came into effect in 1968. We really did a lot of, a, a lot of work on that. And we, we adopted the theory uh, for the judge that it was, um, it was done, uh, that they were there where they could be for national security reasons. Of course, the defense led, said, oh, you know, good grief, judge. How, did this, how is Tommy Blanton a national security risk? Which really lets me get on a soapbox and, and you know, cue up the, you know, um, the, the Arthur Fiedler and the, all the American songs in the background and talk about how communists was taking over the world in 1963 and the president was calling out the National Guard. The president gets assassinated two months later gave a God and country speech, which is great for me. It helped, helped, helped set the stage for a Senate run 20 years later. All right, well, that's a good, that's a good segue to a little bit today, and then we'll get to your, your political run. I mean, one of your, 
you know, the, the subtitle of the book is Bending Towards Justice. Mm -hmm. um, but in fact, you know, your case, in many ways you would have hoped, would have put uh, a pin in the Ku Klux Klan and white supremacists and active right. white supremacists. And, you know, I think we've talked more about the Ku Klux Klan in the last two years yes. than we have in the last 10. Um, and and how, do you, how do you square today with the rise of white supremacy in the United States and, and, and the fact that we're seeing it more and we're seeing it more emboldened when the hope was right. that um, that was a thing of the, um, uh, of the past, actually. Yeah, and that's a, it, it's a really a good question, and it is one where I think, in, in all candor, my book is maybe uh, more timely now than it would have been if I wrote this book 10 years ago. Um, I really think that we saw, started begin to see the rise of white nationalism and white supremacy, not in the last two years, but with the election of Barack Obama. Uh, I think if you look at the internet and see the number of hate sites that grew during the Obama administration, it was extraordinary. And, you can, and, and it's well documented uh, of how there were just a few sites and then after the 2008 election, it just, it just grew exponentially. What I think has happened, though, in the last couple of years is that there's, there's, there's a lot of dog whistle politics out there in which there is not condoning, but the lack of real fervent condemnation um, of, of a lot of these hate-filled acts. And I think that that's giving rise to a lot of the problems that we see now. And I think a lot of the whole... Uh, white nationalist view is is being driven by the administration and their comments that I do not believe, I, not, not for the life of me think that the administration is condoning any acts of violence, but by not condemning in the strongest possible terms and trying to lead people in a way to respect each other more, um, that it is, it is fueling some of the fire. And now we're seeing it being exported uh, even from here over to New Zealand, and that's a real tragedy. We could spend a lot of time on that. I, I'm gonna, and we can maybe come back to it as we think about your political sure. career. So you're, you're the improbable Senate candidate, Democrat, moderate Democrat, um, running. Uh, oh, so you say it's well, improbable. I never. Uh, all right, I, I, <laughs> all right I, I, others said it, but I always believed in you. <laughs> so, um, uh, so you you run in Alabama as a Democrat, first doing since Hal Heflin. Uh, 25 years ago, you worked for Hal Heflin. Mm -hmm. So if you sort of sit back and personally think about the, 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 the race that you ran, mm -hmm. you know, Roy Moore was a, uh, you know, a candidate that gave you a lot of issues, um, sort of abuse, uh, you know, of, 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 of young women um, and outrageous statements and the rest of it. Ran in Alabama in a Trump state where that was quite popular. You won by a surprisingly... Um, large margin, uh, if you think about it, it was close, but still, everybody turned. million votes and winning by twenty-three thousand. Yeah, but I mean a large margin in that if you look at the demographics that came out for you, oh, yeah, sort sure. of ninety-eight percent of all Democrats. How 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 do you how do you when you sit back and you think about how you got here? How do you what narrative do you tell yourself? Well, I I, I say we did exactly what we set out to do when we got when we started this campaign. And, and because our goal was to win that election, but our objective was to also have a voice and to do things that hadn't been done in Alabama in a long time. As Democrats, um, as Democrats started losing power, they started trying to cling to that power 
by basically becoming Republican light and not talking about the core values that I think built the Democratic Party, and that is working class folks, healthcare issues, education issues, and, and issues that people have in common as opposed to some of those social issues that divide everybody so much. So we stuck with our, we stuck with that. We knew that our objective was to really build a voice and to help build things and to help make a change in Alabama with a goal toward winning the election. And we knew that there was a path to win that election in a special election like this. And I would, I, I never, you mentioned as you started your question, talking about the issues that Roy Moore handed us with regard to the allegations of young women and whatever. I rarely talked about that. I rarely did You didn't did need to. I didn't need to. No, I stuck with my process. I stuck with our campaign. And I did one time. It was really one time. I mean, I would have to address when I'd have this gaggle of media that started following us around everywhere. They would want to ask me something, and I would give a quick answer, and I'd pivot to the issue of the day that we had chosen. Um, and then I did one speech toward the end of the campaign. It was about seven or eight days out, because I told my staff, I like what we're doing, but if I don't give a closing argument as a trial lawyer that really makes the case for me, but also the case against this guy, and I lose, I'll never forgive myself. So I did one case where I just did my closing argument and went for the jugular, and I think it was pretty effective. Uh, but we really stayed close to the process and let other people make the case about him. What role do you think moderates now play in the Democratic Party, now as they operate in the Senate, and, and what, what is the role of moderates to be played in the presidential election? I think the role of moderates to be played in the, now and in the presidential race is to effectively provide an avenue to govern because you're not gonna, you cannot govern from the extreme right or the extreme left. You've got to govern more in the middle. There's got to be. Our, our constitutional government was set up to foster disagreements, but to be able to work through those disagreements to, for the betterment of everybody. And to do that, you've got to move. You've got to move off of that. You've got to listen to other people. You've got to do what Atticus Finch said and just kind of you know, get in their skin and walk around in their shoes to understand where they're coming from, not just from a purely political standpoint, but also a philosophical standpoint. And I think when you can do that, you don't have to compromise principles in order to compromise how to get to a, a desired goal that is something that everyone can live with. And so that's the role I see um, the, the folks in the, what I call the radical middle uh, these days and uh, the moderates is to be able to provide an avenue for governance because I think that's the only way you can do it. Otherwise, our, need, our political needle in this country is just going to be flip-flopping left and right, back and forth. And we need to be, have a little bit more steady and ship um, to be able to govern. And I think we had that for, for a long time, even though it would lean one way or the next. Right now, it is, is, it is this way, and we, we, I don't want it to go all the way back over because that's not good for everybody. Just like I tell people all the time, I believe Alabama has suffered a, a lot because we have essentially been a one-party state for a long time. Democrats didn't do a great job when they were in control. Republicans haven't done any better. Uh, we're still at the bottom of so many categories, but it was because the needle went from Democrats to Republicans overnight and there's no ability to talk uh, in the middle. And I think if you look at a number of other states, that ability to be, have, have a dialogue on both sides, I think is where, where states really progress. And I think that's the, true for the country as well. 
Well, I wanted to thank you on behalf of Goldman Sachs, and it was great having you, and uh, good luck on the next election. Thanks, I appreciate okay. it. Thank you all, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast was recorded on March 19th, 2019. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part, or disclosed by any recipient to any other person. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the recipient. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty, express or implied, as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any recipient is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that recipient, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.